And so tell you more about Jesus and what it means that he's raised from the dead. What it means that he uh, didn't stay dead, but he is alive even today. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll read our passage this morning. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege as your people to celebrate on Easter Sunday. God, we thank you that you sent your son uh, to be born of a virgin, to live the life that we couldn't live and in perfect obedience to you and then to die in our place on Good Friday. And Father, we thank you that you didn't allow your son to stay dead. That you caused him to be raised from the dead on Easter Sunday. And that it's through his resurrection that we can be justified. It's through his resurrection that we can be born again. It's through his resurrection that we can have salvation and relationship with you. Father, we thank you that Jesus is alive. We pray today that as we, as we look at your word, as we uh, celebrate Easter together as a body, that you would send your spirit to, to help us to understand more about what it means that Jesus is risen. That, that the fact that Jesus is alive wouldn't just be some theo- theological concept to us, but that it would be a, a real and active and living part of our lives. We thank you that we get to be in relationship with you, our God, because you are a living God. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6. It's also going to be on the slides behind me. Um, So we're going to read verses 12 through 20 of 1 Corinthians 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. So the first thing I want to say about this is that, yes, this is really our passage this morning, right? <laughs> this is not some delayed April Fool's joke. We're, we're going to talk about this passage. We're not going to go through it verse by verse by we normally do. And so why, why, why this passage on Easter of all Sundays? Uh, the reason why is because of verse 14, uh, where Paul in the midst of this passage on sexual immorality, just brings up the resurrection. 
And it, it seems like it's not connected to what he's talking about. It seems like a, a non sequitur, which is a, a, a statement that's not logically connected to what's around it. And so just imagine that, that you're having a conversation with someone about this struggle, about sexual immorality. In the middle of that struggle, one person in the conversation just says, hey, God raised Jesus, and he'll raise us up too. And that's all they say. Right? How, how would we respond to that if someone said that? We would say, what do you mean? Right? How, how is that connected to this conversation that we're having? You just, you just kind of brought that up out of nowhere, and it seems like that's what Paul is doing. But I would submit to you that that's not what Paul is doing. Right? Because Paul knows things that we don't. And the Corinthians know things we don't. Right? Because Paul can bring this up in the midst of this conversation with them and assume that they're going to understand what he's saying. And so what we need to do this morning in order to understand how the resurrection is connected to this struggle with sexual immorality is to understand more about what Paul teaches us about the resurrection. And so our goal this morning is to answer the question, why does Paul bring up the resurrection in the midst of a conversation about sexual immorality? What is the connection that he's making? And so there's, there's two answers to that question. The first is a short answer and the second is a long answer. The short answer is that Paul brings up the resurrection in the midst of a conversation about sexual immorality because for Paul, the resurrection is intensely practical. It has practical realities that connect to our lives in significant ways. And so he brings it up because he knows those practical realities. And the Corinthians know those practical realities. And so they can apply the resurrection to their struggle with sexual immorality. That's the short answer. The long answer is... What are those realities, and how do we connect them to our struggles? And so those things are four truths that we're going to see in four different passages from Paul this morning. That is, that the resurrection changes our relationship with God, the resurrection changes our relationship with our bodies, the resurrection changes our relationship with sin, and the resurrection changes our relationship with each other. So the first passage we're going to go to is Romans 4. So go ahead and flip over to Romans 4. We're going to read verses 20 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, there's, there, the verses are going to be on the slides behind me. That's Romans 4. We're going to read verses 20 through 25. Here, Paul says, No unbelief made him, that's Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification." So Paul here is talking about Abraham and how he was saved by putting faith in the promise that God was going to send a redeemer to save him. So Abraham is saved by kind of forward-looking faith that God is going to keep his promise. Similar to how we're saved by looking backwards the fact that God has kept that promise of sending the redeemer, Jesus, who he's also going to send again to set everything right. And Paul quotes Genesis 15:6 that says that Abraham's faith was counted to us as righteousness. And then Paul explains that those words weren't just written for Abraham, but they were written for us too, so that we could understand things about our faith. 
And he says then at the very end, he says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. What Paul is talking about here is this twofold reality of what Jesus did on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And so the first part is he was delivered up for our trespasses. On the cross, Jesus suffered and died in our place, paying the penalty for all of our sins. He, he did away with the record of wrongs set against us by nailing it to the cross. His sacrifice paid the penalty that we should have paid. It bore the wrath that we should have borne. He stood in our place and suffered and died. Amen. But what if verse 25 stops there? If verse 25 stops there, it moves us from a negative balance to zero. And then it's up to us to get ourselves into some kind of positive standing. Or it's up to us to keep ourselves from going negative again, which we all know us. And we know that we can't get positive and we're going to go negative. That's why it's great news that the verse doesn't stop there, but it keeps going. He was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised on Easter Sunday for our justification. Paul here is telling us that it's Jesus' resurrection that makes our justification possible. It's his resurrection that makes it possible for us to have a right standing with God because it's in the resurrection when God raises Jesus from the dead that he is declaring to all of us that what he did on the cross accomplished something. It it, it declares to all of us that God is well-pleased with his son. And if we are in him, in faith, then God can be pleased with us also. The resurrection makes our justification possible. It moves us from being in a negative standing before God, being in the wrong, being guilty, to being made right in his sight. And we only have that privilege. We only have that possibility. That opportunity is only there because Jesus was raised from the dead. It changes our relationship with God. Without the resurrection, that doesn't happen. It also changes our relationship with our bodies. Flip over to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter here is explaining to us that it's, it's through the resurrection. The resurrection is the instrument that makes it possible for us to be born again. So we just saw in Romans 4 that the resurrection makes it possible for us to be justified. It makes it possible for us to be made right with God. Now we see that the resurrection is what makes possible us being born again. Us being born again is, is a metaphor. It's one of a, a series of metaphors in the New Testament that talks about how we're made different because of what Christ has done for us. We're, we're given new eyes to see. Uh, our heart of stone is taken out and replaced with a heart of flesh. Uh, we're, we're united with Christ in his death and raised in his life. We're, uh, we're, we're made new creation. We're born again. However you want to talk about it, whatever image you want to use, the point is that we are fundamentally different after what Christ has done for us is applied to us than we were before. When we trust in Christ, something happens to us that changes us. 
We are made new. We're made different. We're born again. And Peter tells us that that being born again happens because of Jesus' resurrection. Him being raised from the dead is is the first part of the new creation breaking into the old creation. And if we trust in him, we get united with that. We become new creations too because Jesus was raised from the dead. If he doesn't rise up, that doesn't happen. We can't be born again. And so what, is, what does that do to our bodies, right? How, how, how are we different? Well, think about it in terms of before and after. Before we trust in Christ, how do we view our bodies? Well, first of all, we're enslaved to sin and death. Right? That, that, that's our only option. We, we can do bad things or we can do good things for selfish and sinful reasons, which are bad things. We, we can't get ourselves out of the situation that we're in. Secondly, we do whatever we want with our bodies. Because a, apart from God's intervention in me, I'm a selfish, sinful person who, who does what I want, when I want, why I want, how I want. It's my body. You can't tell me what I can and can't do with it. Which, I mean, if you just look at the culture, that's what you see. Apart from God's work in us, we are people who just do whatever we want. But after God intervenes in us, we begin to realize two things. First, we realize that we are not now and never have been in charge of us. Right? God, as one of the kids pointed out, created us. He made us, and because we're his, because he made us, he owns us. He gets to decide what happens with his creation, and we as the creation don't get to decide that. And secondly, he sent Jesus to die on the cross and to buy us back through his blood, through his sacrifice. And so God owns us. We rebel against him. He sends Jesus. He owns us again. God owns us twice, and because he owns us, our bodies are not ours to do whatever we want with. Our bodies are God's to do whatever he wants with, which is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, he says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. We're no longer enslaved to sin and death because of what Christ has done. We realize that we don't own our bodies. We don't get to do what we want. Instead, we're required, we're called, we're expected to submit to God and do what he wants us to do with our bodies. So why, why does this matter? It matters because it shows us that Paul says that what we do with our bodies after what Christ has done for us matters. And the reason why that's important is because in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is reacting against a common view that the body was bad, but but the spirit was good. And so, like, if we could just get our good spirit out of our bad body, then everything would be all right. And so, whatever we do with our body, it just doesn't matter. Just get rid of it so that, you know, you can have your good spirit. But that's not what Christianity teaches about what happens to our bodies, It's not about redemption from our bodies. It's about how God is going to redeem our bodies so that he can use us to do his work of bringing his kingdom and spreading his gospel and and expanding this new creation that is busted into the old creation. We're to be examples of what it's going to be like when he finally sets everything right. 
So what we do, how we use our bodies, the choices we make, the things we do, the things we don't do, it matters because we're to be representing the fact that his kingdom is broken into this world. Because we have been made new, because we've been born again, because we are new creations, because of Jesus' resurrection. So the resurrection changes our relationship with God. It changes our relationship with our bodies. Number three, it changes our relationship with sin. Flip back over to Romans chapter 6. read verses 1 through 11. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So first, Paul starts by reacting against kind of an extreme view of what he teaches theologically, right? If if Jesus has saved us from our sins, uh, all of them, past, present, and future, then, then shouldn't we just, just keep on sinning so that he can just give us more grace? And Paul's answer is, is no way in the most strongest negative terms he can give. Uh, instead, he points out that because of what Christ has done, because we're united with him in his death and his resurrected life, our lives should look different because we're not enslaved to sin anymore. And he asks this question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And the answer is, we can't. And we shouldn't because we're dead to it. And he gives baptism as an example. He says that when we're baptized as believers, it's a picture of the spiritual reality that happens to us at conversion. Just like when we go down into the the water, it symbolizes us being buried with Christ. We, We died with him. When we come up out of the water, it symbolizes us rising with Christ to walk in a new kind of life. And Paul unpacks that. In verse 7, he says that one who has died, we died with Christ, reunited with him in his death, one who has died has been set free from sin. And there's no other way we can take that verse. Right? Paul is clear. One who has died, and he's, he's saying we died with Christ, we have been set free from sin. So the question to any believer, are we enslaved to sin? Do we have to sin? Must we sin? Does sin have any power over us? The answer is No. And if we think it does, it's because we want to do it. We don't have to sin. Paul makes it abundantly clear in Romans 6 that we're not enslaved to it. How can we who are dead to sin still live in it? Because we choose to. Because we live like the old creation that we're not 
instead of like the new creation that we are. But Paul doesn't stop there. We're not just set free from sin. We're also empowered to live a new kind of life. In verse 10, Paul says, For the death he died, that's Jesus, for the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. That's a lot of words. But Paul's saying that Jesus, the death that Jesus died, he died to sin. He died to satisfy the requirements of sin. But the life he lives, he lives to God. He lives to satisfy the requirements of his Father. So he died to satisfy the requirements of sin. He lives to satisfy the requirements of his father. Then he continues in verse 11. So because Jesus has done what he's done, because we're united with him in his death and united with him in his resurrection life, because of these great gospel truths, you also, that's us, must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And just in case we don't know what that means, he tells us in verses 12 and 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Why? Because we don't have to. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. We have been set free from sin. Our relationship with sin dramatically changes because of Jesus' resurrection. We no longer have to do what it wants us to do. Instead, we're free to do what God wants us to do. And we're finally in a place where we're equipped to do that because we've been raised to walk in a new kind of life. We've been born again. So the resurrection changes our relationship with God. It changes our relationship with our bodies. It changes our relationship with sin. And last, it changes our relationship with other people. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to read a couple sections of this chapter. We're going to start with verses 12 through 19. He says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even be found in we are, even, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So here Paul is talking about what it would be like if the resurrection wasn't true. If the resurrection wasn't true, our preaching of the gospel would be in vain. Our faith would be in vain. We'd be dead and enslaved to our sins. Uh, We, of all people, would be most deserving of pity. So first of all, Paul is assuming that Jesus' resurrection has so 
changed and transformed and affected our lives that we are all living in such a way that if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then our lives will have been a waste. And everybody else should look at us and say, those poor people, I can't believe they devoted their lives to those things. I can't believe they lived their lives the way they did when that's not true. That's what it would be like if the resurrection wasn't true. But then, in the end of the chapter, Paul gives the opposite. So look down at the last verse in chapter 15. He says, therefore, this is because the resurrection is true, because it did happen, because these things are realities. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because the resurrection is true, because we can be made right with God, because we have been born again, because we have been set free from sin, because Jesus is raised from the dead and we are united with him in a life like his, because of that, we should be these things. We should be steadfast and immovable. We should always be abounding in the work of the Lord. The resurrection should change the way we relate to other people because everybody around us is either someone that needs to hear the good news about what Jesus has done, about his life, death, and resurrection for the first time, or there's someone like us who needs to be reminded of the theological realities of the resurrection and how they apply to our lives and our struggles. Because the resurrection is true, we should be living lives that are consumed by it. So that if it isn't true, all of it's a waste. In the midst of a passage about sexual immorality, Paul brings up the resurrection. Because it is intimately related to any struggle we have with sin. Because it changes who God is to us. It changes our relationship with him. It changes the way we view our bodies and what we can and cannot and should and should not do with them. It changes the way we relate to sin. We recognize we're dead to sin. We don't have to give in to it. It changes the way we relate to other people. It's really difficult to sin against other people. It's really difficult to lust after other people if your goal in that relationship is to share the truth of the gospel with them. It's to preach to them the good news of what Jesus has done for them. If we're focused on loving people actively, it's going to be hard for us to be unloving towards them. As we transition to the Lord's Supper. There's one more verse. Hebrews 7.25 It says, Consequently, he, that's Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. The reason why I want to bring this verse up at the end is because it shows us that the resurrection isn't a theological concept. It means Jesus is alive. Like, actually alive. Not not alive in theory. Not life adjacent. Not, Not something kind of like life. 
Jesus is alive. Like that, that's real. That's true. He is here with us. He's in us. He works through us. We can relate to him. We can have a relationship with him. We can talk to him. We can experience his life in our lives. He is alive. And that means that the fact that the resurrection does all these things for us isn't just theology. It's reality. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, as we get to worship Jesus today, as we get to continue in our service today and continue with our lives this week, I hope that the reality that Jesus is alive makes these all other things that we've talked about in the Word real to us in a way that they aren't if Jesus isn't alive. As we celebrate his death, don't forget that he's alive. As we pray to prepare our hearts, don't forget that there is a person on the other end of the line that who's alive and you're talking to. And he always lives to make intercession on our behalf. That means everything we do is mediated. Jesus is standing between us and the Father, and all of it goes through him, which is really good for us. Because that means that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus first. And that's why we can be made right. That's why we can be born again. That's why our relationship with sin is changed, and that's why our relationship with other people is changed, because Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are risen from the dead. And that you always make intercession for us before your Father. We pray now that as we move to, to celebrate both your death and also your life on our behalf, that, that you would send your spirit to do in us and for us what we can't do for ourselves, that you would take these realities, these truths of your resurrection and your salvation and apply them to us, to make them real for us. I pray that in this moment and, and throughout this week, that as we're struggling with sin, that you would remind us of the truth of the resurrection and that we would grab hold, lay hold of these realities, these truths, and live in light of them, to live in them. Help us now to respond rightly to the reality of Easter. It's in your name we pray.